Welcome to Deep Green, a bi-weekly show about how the built environment impacts climate change and equity. Deep Green is brought to you by Metropolis. I'm your host, Avi Rajagopal. Buildings are some of the biggest things we make as human beings. So if you want to know how we can do better for the environment and for all life on this planet, you have to understand buildings and cities and all the things that go into them. And that's what we want to help you with here at Deep Green. Now, we generally like to be optimistic here at Deep Green, and so we'll start today's episode with a piece of good news. In 2020, a fifth of all the energy generated in the United States came from renewable sources. That means wind, hydroelectric, solar, biomass, and geothermal energy are slowly but surely winning. Combined, they surpassed nuclear and coal-based energy in the U.S. for the first time in history. This, of course, doesn't mean that we can take the pressure off of saving energy. In fact, as we move towards cleaner sources, we have to get more efficient in how we handle and use energy. And that means, you guessed it, batteries. This has been an eternal problem in electricity generation. When you generate too much electricity, how do you store it so you can use it when your capacity to generate dips? It's also a problem with energy efficiency. If buildings can somehow harness or capture energy at the time when it's being wasted, whether that's in the form of electricity or heat, and use it when the building actually needs it, then maybe the building doesn't need to rely on the grid as much. And that's a good thing, especially when, as we saw in Texas last year, electricity supply isn't a sure thing in this age of climate change. So architects and engineers today have hit on a new solution for storing energy in water. Okay, now don't get me wrong. The idea of using water to store electricity when a power plant generates too much of it, that idea is almost a century old. It was first used at a plant in New Milford, Connecticut in 1930. The technology is called pumped hydro energy storage. It's used all around the United States today and it works on a pretty simple principle. Imagine two bodies of water, one at a higher elevation than the other. When you make more energy than you can use, you just run a pump with that energy and send water up from the lower tank or pool or reservoir to the higher one. And then when you need that energy, why, you just open the gates on the higher one and let that water rush down to the lower one, spinning a turbine along the way and generating all of that electricity back. Okay, so, Pumped hydro energy storage is great if you're generating electricity. But what if the energy that you're wasting or that's in surplus is in the form of heat? How then do you store that and use that energy at a different time when you need it? That's what we're gonna talk about today in two projects, both involving using water as a battery, but for heat. First, Metropolis executive editor Sam Lubell speaks to the visionary architect Carlo Radi, who's also a professor at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Radi and his architecture firm won a Metropolis Responsible Disruptors Award this year 
for Hot Heart, a proposal to heat the city of Helsinki using a set of floating basins in the Gulf of Finland. Then, in part two, senior editor Kelly Beeman talks to Don Pawson, a director of engineering at Smith Group, who designed the very first sewage waste energy exchange system in a commercial building in the U.S. Yep, you heard that right. The building uses sewage as a battery. Brilliant stuff. Here's part one, Hot Heart, with Sam Lubell and Carlo Ratti. Welcome to Deep Green. Thanks for being on, Carlo. We appreciate this. This is Carlo Ratti, Italian architect, the director of MIT Sensible Cities Lab, and he's also the director of his own firm, Carlo Ratti Associati, and all around, I think, fascinating thinker in architecture. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We're here to talk about Hot Heart, which was a winner of, of Metropolis's first ever Responsible Disruptors Awards, also winner of a Helsinki Energy Challenge. And we were fascinated by this sort of archipelago of heat storing basins off the coast of Helsinki, which store energy, provide recreation. But that's a very basic description. I wanted to know if you can kind of let our listeners know in a little more detail about how this works. Yeah, sure. Before I tell you how this works, you know, something interesting is actually how the competition was run by the city of Helsinki. You know, usually cities are very risk averse and cities usually look at, you know, what we call, what, what are called best practices. So, you know, you look at what other cities have done and you copy that and you keep on doing it. But, you know, that's really the opposite of innovation. You're basically locking the future into the past. You're looking at things that were maybe ideas that were tested 10, 20, 30 years ago, they were successful, and then you keep copying them and, you know, again, you know, perpetuating them into the future. And, and so the first thing that's, uh, that's interesting is actually the city of Helsinki decided to do a different approach, approach that's based on the idea of moonshot, or, you know, for many of us in the United States, it's similar to the X-Prize approach. You know, basically you take a big challenge, you allow people to compete from all over the world, and then you select kind of first some finalists and then the, the winners. And this is what happens. And uh, as you mentioned, yes, you know, we, we were selected the winners together with uh, three other teams of the, the Moonshot, the, what is called the, the Helsinki Energy Challenge. And our idea is, uh, is quite simple. It's basically that a big problem when you use renewable is storage, and battery storage is still very expensive. To give you a sense, you know, today to produce a one megawatt hour of uh, energy in a renewable way, that can cost you something around 15 to 30 dollars per megawatt hour. You know, depends on where you are on the on the planet, if you're using the sun or wind and so on. But to store it, it will cost you $200,000 to store one megawatt hour. Well, our idea was simple, given that here in the end, we need to turn energy into hot water in order to heat the city, to do district heating, then why wouldn't we use big, uh, call them thermal batteries, this kind of floating archipelago with uh, insulated islands with a lot of hot water inside? And if you do that, actually the cost for one megawatt hour is closer to $200. So three order of magnitude less than if you were to if we're using regular batteries. So that's in a natural idea. Right. That's amazing. I, I, the question I have when I think about this sort of storage is how, how does it even work? How is it so well insulated that it keeps this water you know, warm for so long? And how does that provide energy? 
Yeah, so basically when you when you when you produce a lot of energy, uh, mostly through wind, uh, you know, sometimes actually prices are very low. Even the average prices you can consider something around, you know, $20, $25 per megawatt hour. But sometimes prices go down, sometimes they even become negative. So basically when there's too much production in Finland and many other countries you get negative prices, then in that case you actually use uh, the power in order to through heat pumps in order to produce heat. And, you know, the floating islands are insulated in a standard way with standard insulation. But then you can actually use the water from, from these islands and run it through the city, through the city's district heating system. And so that becomes a sustainable way to, to heat energy, which was the main challenge that the mayor outlined in the, in the competition. Right. So then you've created the, the warm water and then you just you can sort of use it whenever necessary and you don't have to create energy at a time when it's going to be a lot more expensive. Totally, that is, that is correct. And, and the other good thing is that because uh, all of Helsinki is really already covered by a district heating system, you just have to plug in into the existing pipe. So you don't have to do work. You just you know get energy which is produced through wind. There's a lot of new wind farms currently under construction or planned in, in Finland and in Scandinavia. And basically, you're just getting power from them and then, you know, turning it into hot water. So just a simple battery in the middle between renewable power production and the district heating system. I'm also fascinated with the idea that, so you're creating this system really efficiently, but you also have these, what you're calling floating forests. So some of these heat storing basins have domes over them and they become sort of biodomes in a way with the recreation inside them. Maybe you can tell about that. Thanks all for asking about that. And, uh, you know, there, there's an important thing here for us is, you know, many cities are now committed to very ambitious goals, like being net zero carbon by 2050 or even 2040. But the only way we can, we can do that really is if people are involved, if, you know, we are all involved. The only way we can tackle the big complex interdisciplinary challenges we have ahead on the planet is if we do it all together. Achieving the climate targets requires uh, also behavioral change, requires all of us to be part of that. And so that's why we decided, well, if you do this big piece of infrastructure, how can we also make sure that people learn about it, that people learn about climate change, about energy, about the green transition and all of that. And so that's how we decided we can use the top of the islands. You know, some people want to use the top of the floating islands to, to build additional real estate. You know, that's also an option. Some of this, some homes can be built. But the key thing is that we wanted to create an attraction so the people from Helsinki, from Finland, from all over the world really could actually go there and learn about infrastructure. By doing that, I think we, we achieve something I think is, uh, is important. That's uh, really making sure that, that we all understand about the challenges we're facing and you know how we can decarbonize. Right. And then while you're, so while you're learning, you're also having some fun um, because obviously, and I've been to Helsinki only in the summer though, but in the winter, I would imagine people are not getting out much. This is a great way to provide much needed recreation. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. And that's why, you know, I, I think this might change where we are now in discussions with the city and they might also come up with other ideas. But everybody, like this idea of the floating forest. And by the way, in Finland, it's very, very common to spend a lot of time in the forest, is, you know, both during the summer and during the winter. And so the idea was, how can we do this? But, but in a different way. So again, on some of the floating islands, you got these biodomes. And we decided to put four of them actually starting from the four key rainforests of the planet, Central America, South America, Africa, and Asia. 
And, and so again, it becomes a way to take something that's already very, very common and ingrained in, in the Finnish culture, but actually give it a different meaning, again, thanks to energy and thanks to the ability we have to control climate. Wow. Especially having been to Helsinki, I've, I've been actually went to a sauna that was right on the ocean and there's something magical about being out on the water there. Actually, some people uh, describe this almost like you know, a giant sauna because the idea is that you use a very, very minor fraction of the heat which is stored inside the islands. And you use that, imagine, on 0.5%, so very, very little. And you use it, again, to change this ecosystem. And almost like you create a larger sauna, a larger you know, hot, hot pool and, uh, and a hot climate, where, again, you can uh, we, we, really people will, be, will learn about the infrastructure, but also, again, about climate change and climate remediation. And also the fact that sea levels are rising, I guess, to have these floating facilities seems like a, a smart idea as well. Yeah, you, you're absolutely right. The fact that the sea level is rising, that was also one of the things that inspired us in, in terms of thinking about the floating infrastructure. You've really innovated in architecture. You did the Time Pavilion at this recent Dubai Expo using uh, microalgae to sort of remove carbon dioxide and store it. You did Living Nature, the natural ecosystem at Milan. Design Week gives so many examples. And I'm curious, with this one, was there a specific inspiration or how did you develop this concept? I would say there's something common behind uh, the projects you mentioned, but also many other projects we, we've been doing, we are working on at the moment. You know, and that is really how we can find a better integration between the natural and the artificial world. Architecture in the past century had a very clear separation between natural and artificial you know, in the 20th century, but also before, has always been a way to, for instance, uh, impose some kind of order on nature. And this kind of tension between natural and artificial, we believe, is really what brought to all the crisis of the Anthropocene. And so a lot of what we are trying to do in our architecture is see how we can find new ways to blend, to blur the boundary between, between natural and artificial. And there's really two ways to do it. You know, one way is to use artificial intelligence sensors actuator because they allow the artificial world to respond dynamically, almost like a living organism. But the other thing is really using nature as a building block for a lot of what we try to design. So, so the combination of the two is, uh, is really what we try to explore in, in a lot of our projects, including, of course, in the, in the hot lab. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned trying to merge nature and not conquer nature. I know you did the pavilion at Dubai Expo, but this sort of popped into my head this idea that Dubai now has this museum of the future. And to me, it doesn't feel that much like a museum of the future because it's very much about man conquering nature and it's, it's using robotic construction and, you know, sort of amazing futuristic technologies, but it doesn't really look at the merger with nature. And I see that sort of, as you're saying, as the future, more than these sort of man conquering nature. I don't feel like that feels like a museum of the future to me. I actually, it's interesting. I just wrote an article just a few weeks ago for um, an op-ed for Project Syndicate. And the theme was a bit, a bit similar. I mean, I believe Dubai, uh, I like Dubai's attitude of being passionate about future. It's one of the few cities on the planet where, again, you've got a museum of the future, but you've got also uh, a future Dubai foundation. You've got a minister for artificial intelligence in the government. Uh, so, you know, the, the country really is very projected into the future. But you're right, you know, sometimes... Uh, the future that you see is perhaps based on some values from the past century. The Museum of the Future is an is interesting building next to Dubai's main road. It seems to engage with just with the artificial, not with the natural world. But the future, I believe, will have to be a new alliance between the two.
And, and speaking of the future, the, the Helsinki Energy Challenge and Hot Heart is r- reportedly supposed to be a reality by 2028. And this is actually going to happen. Is that, is that still the case? Yeah, we're, we're working with the city. There's a lot of excitement. There's also other cities who, who were inspired by Helsinki. You know, now we're asking to do feasibility studies in their city. It's quite a simple concept, if you think about it. And it can play a role in, uh, in many places, but we can play a role in uh, cities at higher latitudes, like Helsinki, where it's cold and you've got it, especially if you already have district heating, it becomes very competitive. So again, you know, cities such as Helsinki, Stockholm, Copenhagen, or cities in Scotland, in Canada, but also it could be used in reverse in a city such as Dubai where the, or Singapore. You know, the problem is the opposite. It's not about storing heat, it's about, uh, store, it is about cooling. Uh, and you can do not district heating, but district cooling, which is uh, much more effective. So you can think about the hot car being, uh, being interesting in a variety of cities. But the first product, I know we're, we are working with the city. Clearly, the, the, the whole project is, uh, is a major investment. So we're working in phases. The phase one is uh, to do a smaller one that we can test and monitor and from there to scale up to the fully fledged thing. On paper, everything is very good. But, you know, when you go something new that hasn't been tried yet, you really want to, to go step by step and, again, test a smaller, smaller, you know, we're thinking that, the final islands at the moment are 225 meter in diameter, and we are planning to start with a 75 meter diameter element that we can test in the port, and then from there scale up to the whole archipelago. Work is progressing very fast. We are very excited about it. And again, in Helsinki and in a bunch of other cities, who are thinking that similar solutions might help decarbonize. Well, it's fascinating, and that you mentioned this could be this could be performed by other cities, which brings up. Couple of questions for me. One, have any of these cities specifically approached you, or this is possible? And and two, maybe you can tell talk to our our listeners a little bit about how these distribution channels in these cities actually work, because it's to us it's sort of a new thing. We are having at the moment conversations with a few other cities now because there are still conversation. Probably would, would not be fair to to mention them, but some of the major cities that are similar latitudes, and you know, they are thinking about they were inspired by the. Helsinki competition are thinking about how, you know, they could also at different scales develop something similar. And, you know, going back to the second part of what you were saying, again, the district heating system usually is something very good. Not every city on the planet already has a district heating uh, network. But basically what you want to have is have pipes going to the different homes and the condominia. And basically that's how you distribute hot water or some kind of hot fluid in a centralized way across the city. And that usually is much better than, you know, producing heat locally in every house. You can use uh, heat production in a centralized way. Usually you combine that with energy production. So you do cogeneration for the two, and then, you know, the water is, is what is then distributed in, in the city. And, you know, that is becoming more and more common, especially with the big ambitious targets the cities are setting to decarbonize by 2050, 2040 or so requires, you know, moving, especially working on the infrastructure so that our infrastructure can become less carbon intensive and more sustainable. Well, it does seem like for whatever reason, and maybe you can have your finger on this more than I do, that the the cities like in Scandinavia, particularly when it comes to green energy, such as this and many others seem to be way ahead, or at least a little ahead of, of a lot of the rest of the world. Do you find that there's any reason for that? Yeah, it's it's a very good good question. I've been asking myself the same thing. Also, you might expect, you know, that some cities in countries where it's quite cold actually might be 
the ones not acting very fast and might even like, try to think about for many winter months is, is almost having a positive impact on them. But actually, they're very seriously fighting climate change. I was thinking about a number of reasons. You know, one of them is that, that today we're seeing the extremes of climate change actually in uh, northern latitudes. For instance, as you, as you know, we, we've read in the United States a lot about Alaska, which is warming much, much faster than the rest of the, the country. So somehow some of those countries are warming faster. It also, you know, shows the effects of climate change in a much more compelling way. And there's something else that's, uh, that's interesting, I think, about Scandinavian countries is uh, how they've been able to work within clearly a capitalist framework, but also to give more agency to the state to do different things. You know, some people remember some of the discussions that, for instance, Bernie Sanders was having about Scandinavia as a model. So somehow, you know, they are also able to mobilize citizens in a way that you don't see in some other countries that are a little bit more individualistic in the way society works. Right. I mean, how about where, where your office is based? Well, you're, you're split between the U.S. And, and Italy, but I don't think either of those countries has, has, has reached even close to where some of these countries are. Yeah, you're, you're right. But I think it is the same thing. There's another thing to say, however, is that I think a lot of change today is happening at the city level, you know, is uh, cities. And, and here we see a lot of innovation in the U.S. as well. You know, I'm thinking about Michelle Wu in, in Boston and her uh, climate plan. And uh, I'm thinking about other cities in the United States or in Europe. In, in Italy, the mayor of Milan is really pushing a lot of decarbonization. It's, a, it's doing very exciting experiments. So there's another thing to say that, yes, you know, there's something to be said about the national level and certainly countries are more conducive to some of this action, but battle really is being fought more and more at the level of cities. And, and so things are more nuanced. In the same country, you can have some cities can be backward, but you also find the pinnacles of innovation. That happens in the US, in Italy, all across Europe, in Asia, Singapore is innovating a lot, Dubai in different ways. Again, the future orientedness of the city is also leading to different type of innovation. So uh, I think, you know, cities are going to be the battleground for, for winning the climate battle. That's an interesting, interesting perspective. I like to say uh, all politics is local, maybe all innovation is local to some extent too. And the last question I have is just your model of innovation, because you have the advantage of not just being an architect, but also you're trained as an engineer and obviously you teach at MIT and you've done quite a bit of research, not just on architecture, but on energy and, and other parts of technical uh, expertise that most architects don't have. So maybe talk about how that training and, and work in both fields really makes you more innovative. Yeah, no, thanks, uh, thanks for mentioning this. You know, you, you're right, you know, there's a, also in my studies, you know, there's been some engineering, some architecture, some computer science and mixing in a mix of that. But I think the key thing is probably to avoid uh, some of the arrogance that architects had in the past century. In the past century, there was the idea that just one person single-handedly uh, could make decisions for millions of people and, and find solutions for you know, the big challenges of the time. Think about you know, what comes to mind is Le Corbusier presenting the Plan Voisin for Paris, proposing to raise the city, affecting millions of people but without even bothering to ask them, just one person single-handedly, you know, which was, there's a beautiful picture from that time in the 1920s, is the handle Le Corbusier unveiling the model of the plan was in. And that's, uh, that's the handle Le Corbusier, it's the handle of the architect, but almost like the handle of God, uh, you know, making decisions. The important thing is that today we, we need to, to be aware of the fact that the only way we can tackle some of the big challenges ahead is if you do it together. And again, different people, different disciplines coming together and, uh, and working together. I, I like to think about the future 
role of architects and designers that something that you could call like a choral architect, an architect able to harmonize different voices to, to really bring different people together to tackle the big challenges we, we are facing today. I like it. That's a good model. The conductor, I guess, Corbusier, I don't know what his role would have been, but certainly he wouldn't have been collaborating as closely with everybody. He would have been more ordering. <laughs> and, and by the way, to add, to add, if you want, this is a lot about top down and bottom up. You know, and that applies also to the way we govern society, you know, to, to, to more democratic or less democratic systems, to more or less open societies. It, it applies, you know, we are seeing now a big fight between a, a open and top down and bo- open bottom up and top down systems, for instance, in the, in the terrible war in Ukraine. And, and I think there's something to learn from that also for our own disciplines. Again, you know, bottom-up systems are the ones that can really empower people. They're more resilient. And I think they're the only way we can tackle the big uh, challenges ahead. Well, yeah, I think that's well put. And obviously our hearts go out to everybody suffering from that war. And I don't think anybody anticipated that this kind of existential battle between these different types of governing and, and being would Kind of reach where it has already but but anyway this is fascinating and really uh, carlo really appreciate you being on and and talking to us about this and we're excited to see it move ahead and to see what else you come up with. thank you thanks for having me and your know, great conversation and looking forward to continue it with you and with uh, everybody else listening deep green will be back after a short commercial break deep green is brought to you by caesar stone a Metropolis Sustainability Next partner. Caesar Stone's sustainable surfaces are inspired by nature. Specify premium quartz surfaces such as their white light and outdoor collections in both residential and commercial projects. Designed and manufactured with the planet in mind, visit caesarstoneus.com to find out more. Deep Green is back with part two of our episode on water as a battery. Part two, the DC Water Headquarters. Designed by Smith Group, this office building for a water utility in Washington, DC, has earned a LEED Platinum certification from the US Green Building Council. That's the highest certification for sustainability in architecture from the USGBC, and a 2021 Planet Positive Award from Metropolis. So this is a sustainable building, and part of what makes it so efficient and responsible is its sewage waste energy exchange system. Here's Kelly Beeman in conversation with Don Pawson. I'm Don Pawson. I'm Smith Group's Corporate Director of Engineering. I'm based out of San Diego, California. Don, I'm so happy that you accepted our invitation to have this conversation today about the Smith Group Design DC Water Headquarters. We're so excited about this project, especially three years after it was completed, because it's it's a municipal office building for the District of Columbia's sewer and water utility. But that said, it incorporates some very cutting edge green technology that we don't ordinarily associate with municipal offices. It's so innovative that it is one of our Planet Positive Award winners for its impact on people and the environment. We explored that in Metropolis's January-February issue in an article where we we talked about the unique building skin that is engineered for self-shading and cooling, a lovely green roof, an extensive rainwater harvesting system. But today, you graciously agreed to speak with us about 
a really big feature that has attracted a lot of attention, and that's the sewage waste energy exchange technology. Could you explain what the system does, I guess, to start with? Thank you. Yeah, no, it's an interesting concept. Probably blows the mind of most people when we first explain what it actually is. It's, you know, it is creating uh, something very unique for a commercial office building. Typical commercial office building, you know, especially in the Washington, D.C. area, would have a cooling and a heating system because of the weather and the climate in the mid-Atlantic region. So it would have a chiller system to keep it cool during the summer and a boiler system to keep it warm in the winter. The boiler system uses natural gas and the uh, chiller system uses electricity. These have been eliminated in this instance because of this unique system, correct? Exactly. In, in lieu of those traditional systems, we're really tapping into a thermal energy source that really resides underground in all major cities, which is uh, city sewer systems. The uh, U.S. Department of Energy estimated there's 350 billion kilowatt hours of energy just sitting in the sewer systems of our cities. And so what we're doing is tapping into a sewage pumping system that D.C. Water and Sewer District had uh, right on site where this headquarters office building was being built and basically tapping into it with this heat exchanger that then extracts heat in the wintertime and brings that heat into the building to keep it warm without burning fossil fuels within the building and having a fuel fight boiler. And then in the summertime, when you would traditionally be cooling a building and getting rid of heat, the traditional system would be dumping that heat to a evaporative uh, cooling tower. You know, in DC, that's really the most energy efficient way to do it, but it also uses energy and it uses a lot of water. The evaporative cooling system for a building office building of this size, you know, 160,000 square feet, would, would probably use as much as a million gallons of, of potable water every year just to make up water to a cooling tower system. So instead of using that to get rid of the heat off of the chiller system, we actually take the heat uh, that's coming off of our chiller system and dump it back to the sewer system that then goes down to the treatment plant and dissipates naturally rather than having to use a cooling tower within the building. So we get rid of two major pieces of equipment that you would traditionally see in a building, a natural gas-fired boiler and a water-consuming cooling tower on the cooling side of things. So very unique system, and we're pretty excited about how well it's performing right now. It just sounds like a technology that we should have been using a while ago. How new is the technology, and, and what's the origin of it, if you don't mind? With this project, it was the very first in the U.S. to be applied to a commercial uh, building of any kind. There's been some, you know, sewage heat exchange going on at a, like a sewage treatment plant scale, you know, where they take care of their own heat on site at a treatment plant, but never at a building scale before. We really had to do a little bit of research about where it had been done at a commercial scale. Really, the technology had existed around the world, but not here in the U.S. There are installations in Canada, our neighbors. To the north, there are installations in Germany, and there were installations in China, and each of them were built around a particular piece of equipment. In each one of those countries, it really had been being used at commercial scale for probably 10 or 15 years, uh, pretty successfully. We thought the, the idea of exchanging energy with this sewage pump station, which had you know millions of gallons of raw sewage running through it on this site, was an opportunity for us. So... It wasn't something we were out looking for. It was just out of an idea, <laughs> an innovative idea that we really, our team felt 
had some potential and it was good that we actually found some commercially available equipment to allow us to actually do it. The big gesture of getting rid of those two energy sucking systems, right? The HVAC, I mean, those, those two components of the heating and the cooling just sounds like certainly a, a savings for the building over time in terms of money, as well as just pure energy. Economically speaking, can you speak to the savings maybe as a percentage? Yeah, we did several energy studies, energy analysis, looking at this system compared to other traditional, more high-performance systems. A similar system would be like a geothermal system. So instead of having a, a natural gas boiler and a cooling tower, you would use a geothermal field out somewhere on site to extract heat or get rid of heat in the summertime. Instead of using the earth as that energy sink, we're actually using the sewage that's in the sewer systems in Washington, D.C. And the reason why it actually makes it even more energy efficient is because the temperature of it. So the temperature of that sewage is always somewhere between 60 and 70 degrees. So when we use geothermal, we're exchanging, we're trying to pull heat out of the earth, which at some of these deep wells, it could be 40 to 50 degrees. So it's a little less energy efficient to pull it out. So when we did energy comparing it with this similar system of geothermal, versus a traditional system with boilers, we found we could get as much as 48 to 50% energy savings from a, just a general code compliant system, which was probably five to 10% more energy, energy efficient than a traditional high performance geothermal system. Wow. Well, what's to keep this from being duplicated in other cities for their sewage treatment? Well, I mean, we were lucky that we were building this for the Water and Sewer Authority in Washington, D.C., because the, the biggest hurdle is the regulatory hurdle of getting your uh, sewer authority to say it's okay to exchange energy with that sewage system, because it's basically once it leaves your building, it becomes their property. They want to know what that impact is, how it would impact their system. But I think they just will probably accept this slowly and then over time kind of watch how it has an impact on their treatment plants. Wow. In that case, is it possible in the near or distant future that a system like this could generate enough energy for use beyond its own site? Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, and there are examples of that in operation around the world. Vancouver called the Falls Creek Energy Center, which was done, I think, for the, I can't remember what year, Olympics that, that happened there in Vancouver to actually heat the Olympic Village, which was the, the housing for the Olympics in Vancouver. And it was kind of a city scale system where they extracted it out of the city sewer system. And then they piped a heat exchange medium around to an entire development, which was the Olympic Village, and which eventually got turned into a mixed-use residential development for the city itself. So that then becomes an energy resource for the entire city. So they're constantly pulling the energy out of the sewer system and giving it back to those districts. So you actually are paying for the energy coming back from the utility. And I think that's another thing that you'll probably begin to see is that these utility companies will start to regulate this energy because, you know, if they start distributing it and scale outside of a one building, there's a cost to that to them. And so they'll probably begin to have some, you know, fee associated with your tapping into that and actually using it for your building. That possibility must make it more attractive to them to consider then as another source of revenue 
Oh, absolutely. And I think most of the cities that are starting to see this being implemented have probably already started to look at how they can do that and how they can help support that. Well, as an engineer, I don't know, how, how much does it ex excite you? Especially given that you've seen a lot of different systems. I'm very excited. I mean, we have lots of projects where, you know, we really get excited when we see we're using waste energy. It's one of the best ways to make the overall energy efficiency better is just to get rid of the waste, the things that are just being wasted that we don't even know about. And this is one of those, you know, waste energy streams that has existed for a while. The more we can recapture that, definitely the more excited I get. I just, I hate seeing that waste energy. We do that with airflow, you know, in, in the laboratories that we design where we get this energy being exhausted out of laboratory buildings. And it's just, you know, putting energy out the top of sheet metal fan stack. And we find ways to capture that because we don't want to waste that energy. We want to keep it in the building. And so these sewage waste streams are the same way. We put energy into hot water in our buildings to heat it for our uses inside. And then we just let that energy go down the drain and leave the building rather than trying to keep it, you know, keep that energy. And, you know, I hope more people get interested in it and explore it. I want to be first in line. <laughs> I want my house to be first in line. Yeah, we're going to get you, to, we're going to get you to carbon neutrality. That's what we're going to get you to. That's, that's the whole intent of this is keep, keep everything neutral with the energy that's coming in and the energy that's going out. I'm thinking this sounds a little bit familiar, maybe on a residential scale of like some, a heat exchange. I don't remember grasping the, the true extent of the waste, of the wasted energy. I mean, years ago, you know, there were these, uh, there, there were almost like a coil around your a shower drain pipe to try and, you know, recover some heat in a residence. You know, the shower is one of the areas where you really use a lot of hot water every day, every day. And, and that got popular for a while. But really, you know, when you step back, there are so many other areas where we use heat in our water systems, like dishwashers, washing machines. I mean, the energy that goes into some of those really starts to add up when you look at it. And when you start to get at some of these industrial or laboratory or hospital systems, they pump a, a lot of energy, especially hospitals. You use sterilizers to keep things clean and that you know, super hot water goes down the drain after they've sterilized everything. Just an amazing amount of energy that can just simply be caught before it leaves the building and brought back in, not even make it to the sewer system if you do it right. Why do you think that those systems aren't proposed more, especially for new developments? And you don't have to go on the record <laughs> if you say something like lobbyists or whatever, you know, I, because that's what I'm thinking right away, right? Is that somebody's lobbying for the conventional, all of the, the businesses, the industries that, that are part of the supply chain for HVAC systems, for the servicing, for the parts. And that is sort of the creating like a, a barrier, right? Yeah. I, you know, I think some of it is just the new technology. We just, no one has ever done it at scale in the U.S. You know, the other is, is too, is a little bit of the yuck factor. You know, if you think about the waste coming out of a building, it's not just sinks and showers, it's toilets and everything else. So getting people to think that we're going to capture that, all of that, you know, yucky waste and pull energy out of it. You, you certainly are dealing with clients at a, a high level, not like an individual homeowner, and they still have that thought? 
sometimes because they think that it's that it, it's going to be a lot of work to get it extracted. You know, okay. And that's that's been a little bit of the game changer that we found is some of these equipment suppliers that we found have developed equipment to be able to do this pretty inexpensively to to run that kind of raw sewage waste through a heat exchanger to be able to pull the heat out. You have to do some stuff to it without getting into too much detail. You got to somewhat a little bit, you have to settle the solids out and get down to at least what they call a gray water, water to exchange the energy with your traditional water systems in your building. And, And in the past, those were complex and expensive. Well, they've got them now to where they're pretty simple and straightforward of how they do that. With a package unit, you can just drop in a building, like an apartment building or something, and just start exchanging that energy right away and without a lot of maintenance. Yeah. Especially when you say gray water, I think, you know, you say sewage and people automatically think toilets, but gray water is, as you said, from the shower, from the sink. You think at least we could start there. If you can just basically isolate those gray water sources, you have very little you need to do to exchange the energy from those. That makes it even more cost effective. Are you thinking of doing this at your house? Not yet. May in the future. (laughs) (laughs) The shoemaker's children, right? Exactly. I'm imagining like you want to go home and do all the engineering work that you do for Smith Group right from your own office for yourself. I I just got my full PV array on my house to make me basically net zero energy. So I'm always looking for other things. That's so cool. To be energy efficient at my house. Deep Green is produced by Metropolis. I'm your host, Avi Rajagopal, and this episode was reported by Kelly Beeman and Sam Lubell. The podcast is edited by Hannah Vidi with support from Lauren Volker. You can read more about both projects, Hot Heart and the DC Water Headquarters on metropolismag.com. A big thanks to today's guests and to all the folks at Sandow Design Group who support Deep Green. We'll be back again in two weeks with another episode of Deep Green, available wherever you get your podcasts.